At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Today, we invite you to join us in our message series and dive deeper into what God's Word has for us today. Matthew 24, verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was going away. When His disciples came to point out to Him the buildings of the temple, but He answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. The word of the Lord. I've been part of a few churches throughout my Christian walk. They've all had strengths and weaknesses, as you would expect. But there's one thing that I'm glad none of them has had, and that's a fascination with the end times. There are some churches that it seems preach from the Bible and from the Left Behind book series. But I've never had to sit through sermon after sermon detailing all these events that would, are signs that the end is near. I've never had to seriously listen to so-called prophets who, who claim to know how the end will unfold and when it'll happen. And I say seriously because I have to listen to some YouTube links that people send me about these things. It seems that there's always some Christians that have a degree of fascination with the things of the end. I did my PhD in the book of Revelation, as you guys know. Um, and, and so people assume that what I focused on was the end times, which by the way, I did not, nor do I think that Revelation is in the main about the end times. It deals with this, of course, especially toward the, uh, the last few chapters. But people always wanna know when the end is coming. Even though Jesus himself, sorry, uh, even though Jesus himself told us, I do not know the day or the hour. And so when you have a year like 2020, where the events seem to be just piling on, you know, there were, that seemed to be signs of the end being near, people's fervor just started to, to, to increase and people started asking, so does COVID mean that the end is near? Has the Antichrist been voted into office or taken out of office? Is the social and political unrest that we see a sign that Jesus is coming on the clouds and if we look hard enough, we just might see him? 
Now, I know that you read the Bible for your devotional time, but you also watch YouTube and Facebook and other sources of inspiration, and sometimes you believe those more. So with so much misinformation floating around, we thought it wise to do a series on the Olivet Discourse, which is Matthew 24 and 25, where Jesus tackles these questions head on. Don't you love him? Don't you love how he never shied away from hard and controversial things? And I'll tell you right now, there are some things that we're gonna say that some of you will not like, and that's okay. But we're gonna spend the next seven weeks answering this question, what now? You know, how do we live today in light of the future? And here's the thing. I think it's really good that we're talking about some of what scripture says about the future because Christians do not live for the present. We don't live for the present. We live for the future, particularly the future appearing of Jesus Christ. We know, we believe that we're not living in the ultimate, but the penultimate chapter of this whole world drama. The ultimate chapter, the last chapter is the longest because it never ends and the best because there is no evil present. So yes, we're very invested in future events. Make no mistake. The problem is not that Christians are future oriented. The problem is that we are bad interpreters of present events and even worse forecasters of future events. So yes, we affirm the remaking of the earth and the return of Christ, but our instincts, our intuitions about such things easily go in the wrong direction, which is why scripture is such a light. Scripture is our true north. So what now? How tomorrow shapes today. That's the new series. And today we're gonna answer it it by looking at three things. The great Uh, destruction, the great deception, and the great declaration. So let's start with the great destruction. Matthew 24, verse 1. Matthew writes, Jesus left the temple and was going away. When his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Okay, let's situate ourselves in the Gospel of Matthew. This is the last discourse of five discourses around which Matthew structures his Gospel. Jesus is in Jerusalem just two days from Passover when he will be executed. And so that week he had done a number of symbolic acts against the Jewish leadership that had rejected him. So he staged his entry into Jerusalem where many of the crowd saluted him as the son of David, though the Jerusalem leadership did not. Then he went into the temple. He came, he went straight into the temple and some call it the cleansing of the temple, but it'd be more accurate to call it the cursing of the temple. There was no cleansing for the temple. The the days of the temple's effectiveness uh, were over. Jesus says, you have made the temple a den of robbers. The Lord of the temple came to it, but they were unwilling and unfit to receive him. And so then he leaves the temple and he sees this fig tree that did not have any fruit and he cursed it, symbolic of what he had just done in the temple. Because you see the temple, like the fig tree, had failed to yield fruit for the Lord when he came looking for it. And then he proceeds to, say, to tell a number of parables against the religious leadership 
questioning their disobedience, their fruitlessness, and their rejection of God's servant. And then we come to chapter 23 of Matthew, which has the most serious indictment against the religious leaders, the scribes, and the Pharisees for their failure to honor God and shepherd God's people and listen to his voice through his servants, the prophets. So that's what Jesus has been up to the last week of his life. And then we come to chapter 24, verse 1, where Matthew says Jesus left the temple and was going away. Matthew is telling us more than just that, more than that Jesus had just left the temple. Jesus will not return. It's done. The days of the temple, the blessing of God over the temple is over. Read with me the last few verses of chapter 23. This is Christ, verse 37. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You can hear his plea. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus pronounces judgment on the temple, on Jerusalem with tears in his eyes. You hear it, right? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. I would have gathered together your children like a hen gathers her brood under her wings. But you were unwilling. The temple was the place, the meeting place of God with man. It was the place of sacrifice, the place where God had put his name. The Jerusalem temple was the apex of Judaism, the national symbol of their election by God. In the gospels of Mark and Luke, when we come to this same passage, the disciples express their amazement at the temple and its buildings. It was a number of buildings. And so they say, look, teacher, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings, which makes Jesus' answer all the more astonishing when he says, you see all of these, do you not? I tell you, not one stone will be left on another that will not be thrown down. Of course, we know that it was the age of, a new, of the new wine. Jesus was now here, so the temple became obsolete. There was a new way, a new access to God, not confined to this stone structure. The temple of Jesus' body would be destroyed and raised in three days. His death and resurrection became the new point of access to God. God would now go beyond the confines of Israel and begin gathering his people from the entire world, not by calling them to go to Israel to worship, but rather by calling them to receive Jesus as God's king, wherever they might be on earth. It all came true. The temple was destroyed within one generation in AD 70, never to be rebuilt. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, see your house is left to you desolate. And when John gives us the vision of the new Jerusalem at the renewal of all things in Revelation 21, 22, he says, and I saw no temple in the city for its temple was the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb, we sang that, worthy is the lamb. That's why we sing it. So do you know that you have access 
to God through the temple of Jesus' body and only through him. So the question for us is, have we received him as God's king? The great destruction, number two, the great deception. Look at verse three. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Okay, so now Jesus has left the temple and he goes to the Mount of Olives, which is why this is called the Olivet Discourse. And the disciples come to him privately. They want clarification because Jesus just dropped this bomb. So they're like, uh, can we talk a little bit more about this? But I want you to notice something because this sets up the rest of the discourse. Jesus says to them when they're in awe, you see this complex of buildings that's so astonishing to you. Let me tell you, they're all coming down. And so they come to him and they say, okay, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your return and of the end of the age? But here's what I want us to see. In their minds, the disciples tie together the destruction of the Jerusalem temple with the return of Christ and the end of the age. That's something that the disciples did. Jesus did not do that. And so what he does in the rest of the discourse is he's helping them understand that those three things, the destruction of Jerusalem, his return, and the end of the age, do not happen at the same time. Although there are similarities in all three. So they're asking these questions, and here's his answer, verse four. And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. So the disciples ask him for a sign of his return and the end of the age, and Jesus replies by giving them many non-signs. <laughs> they ask for a sign. When's the end? He, said, he gives them many non-signs, which is why the title of this message is Not So Breaking News. I am amazed. You know, the first thing he says is, see that no one leads you astray. I am amazed how many Christians so easily buy into all kinds of conspiracies and so-called prophets who claim to know how events are gonna unfold and when it's all gonna happen. One thing's for sure, they're not reading their Bibles closely. The disciples had an interest in these things. And so Jesus tells them, false messiahs will come. You're gonna hear of wars and rumors of wars, nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom, famines, earthquakes in many places. So you could see the disciples going, so, so that's when the end will come? And he goes, no, all of these things will happen, but the end is not yet. It's just the beginning of the birth pains. You see, it seems the destruction of the Jerusalem temple felt to the disciples like such an earth shattering event that when it would happen, it must signal the end. When it would happen, it must signal the end. In Jewish understanding, there were two ages, the present evil age and the coming age when God would restore all things to shalom, to all pervasive peace. So there's two ages. What they could not Foresee what they did not see coming was the Messiah coming and launching the coming age in the middle of the present evil age. 
They did not have a category for that. For them, the two ages were distinct, where they were disconnected. First the one, then the other. But Jesus comes and says, the kingdom of God is like a seed planted that begins to grow within the present evil age. And so there's overlap in the ages. That's where we live. This is why we experience the kingdom of God spiritually within us. And we experience true love and peace and moral purity while all around us there is hatred and chaos and banality. God's kingdom grows within us even while the kingdom of man is all around us. We hammer this point, you guys, back in the fall in the first Peter series, Unshakable, remember? But I'm telling you, some of you still tie your kingdom of God hopes with nationalistic hopes, which is right where the disciples were. The disciples believed that the coming of the Messiah, whom they believed to be Jesus, that's why they followed him. They believed to be Jesus. They believed that his coming meant that victory for Israel, geopolitical victory, that is, was at hand. In John's gospel, in John chapter six, right following the feeding of the 5,000, which was a big event, I mean, where Jesus displayed his power in an incredible way. Following that event, their nationalistic fervor was at an all-time high. So much so that they tried to come and make Jesus king by force. Of course, he would have none of it. And so he withdrew to a mountain by himself, let them cool down. They were misguided, as some of us are misguided in conflating what God is doing in building his kingdom with what the nations of the world are doing, even if it's the nation that you love. And so because their ideology ran so deep and it was so misinformed, what Jesus does here in Matthew 24 and 25 is he carves out space for them between the destruction of Jerusalem on the one hand and his return and the end of the age on the other. And what he's saying to them is, do not be deceived by these non-signs. And we would do well also to not be deceived by non-signs. What he's saying to them and to us is, yes, you're going to see all kinds of disaster and violence and wars and all kinds of hard and bad things. But don't be alarmed. The end is not yet. So the great destruction, the great deception, finally the great declaration. He goes on in verse nine, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Okay, so now the focus shifts from the kinds of upheaval that are happening out there in the world to how the community of disciples will experience that upheaval. He says, the disciples will be delivered up to tribulation. Now I know that word tribulation sparks for perhaps a number of you all kinds of scary images, but it need not. The Greek word here is just the word affliction, which shows up in many places throughout the New Testament. Trial. It's not a happy word by any means, but neither do we have to load it up with every apocalyptic nightmare you've ever had. And we'll talk more about that in coming weeks. But when you put together the three things that Jesus says in chapter 24, verse nine, the picture is not pretty. He says that disciples will suffer affliction 
even death and hatred by all nations because of his name. So what he's telling us here is that as things get hard and ugly out there, the hard and ugly within us will come out. And we know this to be true, right? Anna and I just finished the marriage tune-up seminar and a number of you kept showing up because I know some of you kept thinking, hey, what, what ugly thing are they gonna share about themselves next, you know? But you know that that's where conflict comes in marriage, right? The, the hard and ugly in us comes out and meets our spouse and they respond to us with their hard and ugly. But if we would take that aspect of us to God and dealt with God and so that God could heal us and forgive us and restore us, then we could actually come to our spouse with love and compassion. When one of you does this in your marriage, just one of you, your marriage is off to the path of victory. It just is. But what Christ is telling us here is that as things get hard and ugly out there, the hard and ugly will come out in the people that call him by his name. And so many will leave, they'll fall away, which means they'll leave the faith and betray one another and hate one another. And then verses 11 and 12 give us more detail about verse 10. So how will they fall away from verse 10? Verse 11, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. How will they betray and hate one another? From verse 10, verse 12, because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Now, I know that this can sound like such a downer of a speech for Jesus' last speech in Matthew. I know some of you are thinking like, man, this is the worst Valentine's Day sermon I ever heard. (laughs) And others of you are like, you know what? You will suffer affliction be hated, and even be killed. Yeah, that kind of sums up my Valentine, right? (laughs) But listen, listen, remember what he's doing. His disciples have many misconceptions about what it means to follow him, about what it means to be a disciple of the Messiah, just like we do. We have all kinds of misconceptions, and that's why we're here, because he corrects them for us as we peer into his word. They had seen his glory. That's why they followed him. They had seen him do amazing things. They had seen his power. Jesus did not walk around just doing miracle after miracle after miracle. Like to many people, he was just another person. But there were some who did see it again and again, and it blew them away. They saw, they knew that he controlled the natural, physical, and spiritual realms. Demons obeyed him. And so they followed him. They believed he was God's deliverer. They had seen his glory. What they did not have a category for was his cross. They did not understand that. Not because he was not telling them. Oh, he kept telling them. He kept predicting his death. The closer it got to his death, the more specific he got with his predictions. We're going to Jerusalem where we're gonna be killed. But they still did not get it. They had not internalized it. They just, you know how it is, like sometimes you've heard something a number of times, but it just never really hits you for whatever reason. Well, they do not have a category for this. They have no idea that in just two days, he's gonna be brutally executed. They don't understand that. The only way they're gonna internalize it is actually when it happens. So they haven't internalized his death, much less have they internalized what his death means for their lives. And so what he's doing with this Discourse is not only is he introducing delay in their expectations of his return, but he's also introducing suffering in their experience of the reign of God in their lives. 
And it's in that context, it's in the context of this delay and suffering that their salvation and the salvation of the nations of the world would take place. It's right in the midst of this. Look at verse 13. He says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Listen, Jesus was not scared, no one bit, that all the tumult and war and hatred and nation against nation and, and betrayal and all of these things would impede the mission. On the contrary, very matter-of-factly, he says, the one who stands till the end, the one who endures till the end will be saved. You see, we can get so wrapped up trying to figure out when the end of the world is coming that we forget that we actually, we pretty much know when the end of our world is coming, right? We know, I mean, I know when the end of my world is coming. It's anywhere from one day to 40 to 50 years, if I am blessed, at most, right? I mean, at most, it could be tomorrow. I mean, it could be in the next hour, which would not be so great right now, right? But between that and 40 or 50 years, that's when my end is coming, and that's what we need to be concerned with. That's what we need to concern ourselves with. I don't know if this present age is going to be around for another thousand or two thousand or three thousand years, but I know that my end is coming between one hour to 40 or 50 years. And that's what Jesus is saying to me. Endure until the end, John, and make sure that when you take your last breath, your love for me and for my family has not grown cold. That's what he's saying to us. He says, endure until the end. The gospel will go out to all the nations. Then the end will come. The gospel will be proclaimed throughout the world. And until the end of my life, I am to remain faithful. And until the end of the age, the church is to remain faithful. And if we each remain faithful in our personal life by persevering, by not giving into persecution or letting our love grow cold, if we each do that, then the church collectively, corporately will continue to carry the name of Jesus Christ until the end of the age. Do you see? The end is coming either for you, whenever you die, or for when God brings the end of the age. But what we're told by Christ to do is to endure until the end and continue to carry his name. So what now? How are we to live in light of the teaching of Christ to us today? I'll leave you with three things. Right from Jesus' lips in verses 4, 6, and 13. The first thing is, see that no one leads you astray. Jesus knows that people have many fears and many hopes and that false teachers, false prophets, false messiahs prey on those hopes and fears. They prey on them. The upheaval that we see all around us is a non-sign. It's not a sign. It's always been around. Every generation tends to think that things are getting particularly darker within their lifetime. Have you noticed this? We start thinking, oh my goodness, things are so bad now. Oh man, I'm just feeling for my children. It's like, we, we're so self-referential. We think that because we're alive, things are gonna get really bad. Like, how does the math work? How do we get there? Because I'm alive, the end of the world must be near. Why? But we're so self-referential. 
I mean, you've seen this right in your own life, how people were just so self-focused. I'm sure you've had, you know, you've gone to someone before and said, hey, I want to tell you about my great new job. And they're like, hey, let me tell you about my great new job. It's like, wait, what? Hey, let me tell you how my marriage is going. No, no, let me tell you how my marriage is going. That's how we tend to be so self-referential. Listen, the upheaval we see all around us, it's always been around. So don't believe everything you read on the internet. Don't believe it. Just because someone you trust sends you a link with a really intriguing theory, don't believe it. There's something in us as people, as humans, that love to traffic in speculation, in intrigue, in knowing what no one else knows. Now, I understand that. I can understand that from people who don't have Christ. You know, giving in to that penchant in human beings. But what I have a harder time understanding is when Christians are led easily astray, when Jesus himself told us the crazy we see out there is a non-sign. It's not a sign. It's just part and parcel of living in the last days, which go, by the way, from the time of Jesus' ascension to the time of his return. Not as short a period as you might think. So do not see that no one leads you astray. Second, see that you are not alarmed. Verse six, he says, see that you're not alarmed. Don't be alarmed. Listen, betrayal will always sting. It will always sting. And Jesus talks about many falling away, leaving the faith and betraying one another and hating one another. And whether you've heard of a famous person who left the faith or stuff comes out about them or someone that you know personally, it stings, it will, it's sad. But Jesus says, don't be alarmed. It's always been around that false teachers rise up and start leading many astray. He says, don't be alarmed. Are you gonna let one mere human being rattle the conviction you have in the son of God? Are you gonna let one person's Facebook post be a match against God's word? Don't be alarmed. Jesus forewarned us so that we would be unshaken. He forewarned us so that we would not be shaken. Let nothing move you, Paul says. There will be wars and famines and earthquakes and nation against nation and people leaving the faith. And Jesus says, don't be alarmed. The end is not yet. And finally, endure until the end. Endure to the end. He says, verse 13, he who endures to the end will be saved. He says, because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many, many will grow cold. Are you among the many? Are you among the many for whom love? We spend the last month and a half talking about love from 1 John. Are you among the many for whom love grows cold? As you see wickedness and lawlessness increase, your love just dies out? Did you notice how much Jesus talked about the many in this section? And it's not a good thing. Verse five, he says, many will come saying, I am the Christ and lead many astray. Verse 10, many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Verse 11, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Verse 12, because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Listen, you do not have to be among the many that leave the faith because it is costly to bear the name of Christ. 
Bearing the name of Jesus will cost you. He tells us that we will go through affliction and hatred and even death, not from some small minority that happens to not like Christians. No, he says from all nations because of my name. It is purely the grace of God that we can live with any, that we can live as Christians with any semblance of peace. We need to praise him when we have it. But don't be discouraged. From the beginning of the church, persecution and the spiritual apathy out there in the world have never hindered the spread of the gospel. They've never hindered the spread of the gospel. God will have his people. The earth will be remade. Now one person that belongs to God will be lost. Now one. So what now? What do we do? We proclaim the name of Christ until he comes or until he calls us home. And we do not for a second let our love grow cold. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. Your word is amazing. We thank you for how you shape us and how you correct us and how you strengthen us and comfort us by your word. Thank you, Father. Thank you that we have the words of Christ speaking still today to each one of our hearts gathering your church so that we remain faithful until the end. Father, thank you that you preserve us. Thank you that not one that is yours will be lost. Father, I pray that we would not be led astray easily or at all. I pray, Father, that we would take warning from what Christ has told us and not listen to so much chatter out there, to so much noise, to so many people who prey on the fears of others and lead them astray, God. Pray that we would not be alarmed. There will be betrayal. There will be people that we love that up and leave you, and they wanna take others with them. Father, let us not give in. Let us not be alarmed, not be shaken. Let us be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And Father, I just pray that we would endure until the end. Pray, Father, that when Jesus comes back, he would find our faith vibrant and our love burning. Our love for you, our love for your people. I pray, Father, that we would not obsess over things that Jesus humbly told us that even he knows the day or the hour. Let us rather do what he calls us to. Proclaim his name, bring his name to the ends of the earth and be ever abounding in love. We love you. We worship you. And it's in Christ's precious name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head over to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.